Thank you for that prayer, Sam, and it's so good to see all of you online as well as in person. You know, I really do want to encourage all of us, um, especially those who um, are thinking about, hey, maybe I should come out to church sometime soon, uh, to consider the anniversary service uh, to be the day when you come out physically uh, in person, and let me give you a few reasons why. I would like to encourage you to come celebrate with us on uh, October 25th, number one, is that uh, we know that there's gonna be probably more than a normal amount of people that we're having, and we still have plenty of room in the patio, but we're gonna open up the sanctuary too, so that uh, the sanctuary will become a, vi a video venue. So we'll not only have people here in the patio, but in the sanctuary, so we'll have plenty of seats and still be um, able to social distance and some more. The second reason is that our focus for an, our anniversary service, normally we just we celebrate what God's doing in us, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but this year we're gonna do something different because uh, yeah, like, um, like Pastor Ben said, we're not gonna eat tri-tip or anything of that nature, but what we're going to do is be missional. We're gonna think about our church plant in Honduras um, as we've been talking about them, showing pictures and videos, but our, our aim next Sunday, Sunday is to think about them more, and uh, our speaker will be Pastor Young Moon from Compassion. We'll also have a testimony from, uh, listen carefully, a former Compassion student. Um, she'll be giving her testimony, and our goal at the end of uh, next week is to sponsor 36 kids from our church plant in La Paz who don't have sponsors yet. Some kids have been waiting for like almost a year and so uh, we're gonna uh, make those children available to us, so you wanna come uh, look at that. And thirdly, thirdly uh, we have meaningful gifts. It's not just, just swag, but uh, we're, I'm, I'm really excited to give the gifts that we have prepared for you next week, and you'll find out uh, what they are. If you can't make it, we'll have it available for you to pick up at any time. And finally, we're continuing to uh, kind of work on the space, not only the sanctuary, but around the campus so that it is more inviting for you for a different reason. And if you come here next Sunday, um, uh, things will be uh, different in terms of audiovisual. And so you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. So I'm looking forward to having all of you here. Uh, our passage for today is Mark chapter 9, starting verse 30. Mark chapter 9, starting verse 30. So if you can fire up your app or your program, would you turn your Bibles with me there? Let me read verses 33 uh, through 32 first. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Now, this particular uh, verse Verse 30 is a turning point again in the book of Mark. Jesus has been uh, teaching, healing, trying to convince them of who he is. Uh, and and they've been around north Israel, like around the Galilee area. But this point on, they're headed toward Jerusalem. And so from this moment on, they will be heading toward Calvary. And what I will say is the uh, road to paradox. He's been trying to convince them all this time that Jesus is the Savior and the Son of God. But now, 
he's headed toward Jerusalem so that he can suffer and give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of many. A paradox is defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true, a paradox. Two seemingly contradictory statements that when you examine them carefully are true. The Savior, Son of God, going to become the, uh, to suffer and sacrifice, that's a paradox. When he said what he said, it says that the disciples were confused. They did not understand. If you think about it, it's rightly so that they would be confused. If Jesus was to be the Savior, would he not be stronger than any opponent, or at least any human opponent, including the Roman Empire? How is it then that Jesus says that he will be delivered over to the hands of men? Also, if he, were the, if he was really the Son of God, categorically different from any human being, he is God incarnate, how could he, by definition, God as one who is infinite, unable to die? How is it that Jesus says of himself he will die and then rise again? I think the problem that they had was not that he will rise again, but how can a God die? It's a paradox. They didn't understand. They were afraid to ask. It's a paradox. And on the road to Calvary, Jesus gives three sets of teachings here. And not only is he a walking paradox, but he's going to ask his disciples to live paradoxically. Paradoxes, seemingly contradictory things. Uh, to be great, do it through humility. To be significant, do it through anonymity. And to have eternity, do it through temporal sacrifice. The first is found in verses 33 through 37, greatness through humility. And they came, to, uh, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, and he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such a child in my name, he receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. They were walking. Jesus is walking toward the cross. I want you to remember, he told them he was, and they're having a discussion. The Greek word uh, implies that they weren't just having a discussion, but they were having a debate, an argument. He asked him, what were you guys arguing about? Awkward silence, because they were arguing about who is the goat, the greatest of all time, right? And this is literally the greatest of all time because they're going to set up the eternal kingdom. And the disciples are debating among themselves if this is going to be the eternal kingdom. Jesus is at the, the head of the table who's on his right and his left. They're having this discussion all the time for the Jews. They, they thought this way quite a bit. They thought of eternity as like a banquet table. God is at the head 
And the, the further you are toward the head of the table, the more honor you receive. And Jesus often talks about things like that. You know, I, I, I know that we would look at something like this and scoff, well, how could they argue about being the goat? You know, I, uh, I hate to break this news to you, but we are obsessed with being the greatest of all time, are we not? Let me ask you a question. Which city has the greatest basketball franchise in the world? Right, the Clippers, no. Sorry, Clipper fans, I, I, that was mean. But if I ask the question, who is the, uh, the GOAT, the greatest basketball player of all time? Now, that's, there's a lot of tension there, right? LeBron, Michael Jordan, some would say Kareem, even Will Chamberlain, etc. But we have an obsession with the GOAT. You know, oftentimes, people are not necessarily honest with their personal ambition because, to be honest with you, by the time you get to like beyond 40, you've run out of potential. You are just who you are, right? You realize if you're 40 years or older, you're no, you know you're not the goat, right? And so what, what, what people who have a lot of ambition do is they no longer try to be the goat, but they try to raise goats. You know what I mean? So they raise their children and saying, it's, it's, um, I want you to not only enjoy learning, but get good grades. Oh, and once they start ranking you at school, we want you to be in the top 10 or the top one. Um, we put them in music or dance uh, or, or sports, and, and they may enjoy those activities. But as soon as we understand and learn that they're all-star teams, or certain competitions, we uh, ask our kids to join those things and we're obsessed with them making the all-star or whatever rank that there is. Jesus sits down, it says, and when he sits down, he's saying, okay, this is serious business now. I'm no longer informal talking, but I'm teaching as a rabbi, a divine rabbi. And he teaches them this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I want to be clear here. Jesus does not repudiate the idea, the desire to be great. He does not say you shouldn't strive to be great, but rather he redefines the condition or how to measure greatness. They define greatness in this way that the great people sit at the front of the table, but Jesus says, instead of the front of the table, I want you to sit at the end of the table. Beyond that, I don't even want you to sit there. I want you to be the diakonos, which is the word servant, which is the word they used to use for the waiter, the one who brings the food and takes away the dirty dishes. Instead of feeling like you belong at the head of the table being honored, I want you to get up put on your apron, and serve tables. That's how I measure greatness, Jesus says. You remember the time at the Last Supper, they were also arguing something similar. And what does Jesus do is he puts on an apron, and he gets on the ground with a bucket of water, a basin of water, and he begins to wash the, the filthy, dirty feet 
of his disciples. And the disciples knew that that was not an honorable thing. Peter says, no, no, you shouldn't wash my feet. It's beneath you. And Jesus is like, precisely, do as I do. Do what you believe is beneath you if you want to be great. Let me ask you a question. I know as a lot of churchgoers here in this space and watching, we have a theoretical idea of humility that we don't necessarily think we're that arrogant or we're uh, great driven. But Jesus brings a child to himself and a child uh, in that particular culture wasn't like esteemed highly, but rather children were seen in that particular culture as ones who had no power, status, rights. They had no utility value. They were vulnerable, entirely subject to the father and dependent. He brings a child and says, you must treat this child in a way that honors me. You know, in a way, what Jesus is saying is that to be great is to take those who are insignificant in culture and treat them as you would want you treated. Let me ask you this question, those of us who are so-called Christians. If you are at work and the CEO walks into your office, how would you treat that CEO? You would put down your phone, you would make eye contact, and you would speak in complete sentences, would you not? That is the respectable thing to do. How do you treat, though, how do we treat when we, are, when we are at a restaurant, when the server comes, or when we talk to the person who is mowing our lawn or washing our car. What Jesus is saying is that in order to be great, how I measure greatness is not how you treat the CEO, but how you treat those people whom you think are doing work that's beneath you. A paradox, greatness through humility. You know, one time I had a, a pastor confide in me, Steve, I don't know what to do. I have this person at my church. He is successful, respected at our church. He's smart. And when we have uh, discussions about church uh, matters, especially of the future, he has a lot of good things to say. And when it's high level, public things, he is eager to volunteer. But when we have those times when, we're, uh, ha when we have to do an all hands on deck, okay, everyone, let's put away the chairs or let's clean up the space, let's take out the trash, he's nowhere to be found. He always has a convenient reason why he can't be there. What do I do, Steve? People look at him as an elder material, but I don't know. You know, by the way, I just want to, and not, this is not to just butter you up, but I, I want to say to our deacons and elders and those who serve as deacons and elders at our church that uh, I'm just so grateful for you that when it's time to clean up chairs or put away the trash, that there's not a single servant officer at our church who say, well, this is beneath me. 
and my profession and my job. I have dozens of people reporting to me I shouldn't be doing things like this. I'm so grateful for your diakonos attitude. The second paradox that Jesus says that a, a follower of his should, should have is significance through anonymity in verses 38 through 41. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. John, speaking probably on behalf of all the disciples, approached Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him, but he, because he was not following us. You're not quite sure what to make of John's uh, statement or his ask. Jesus, Jesus, I, we saw someone, um, they're using your name, doing miracles. We tried to stop them. We couldn't. Can you stop them? You know, um, are, they, are they followers of Jesus even though they were not a part of the 12? That's confusing. Are they just prophet mongers like the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19 who were doing miracles but, but God did not approve? Is it even possible for non-Christians, listen, to cast out demons? Is it possible for non-followers of Jesus to cast out demons? Matthew 7, 21 through 23 seems to indicate there are those who cast out demons saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will eventually say, I never knew you. Now, there are two points, two points here. First of all, I want you to listen carefully to what John, John says. We try to stop him because he was not following us because he was not following us. You know, you would have expected John to say, say, we try to stop him because he was not following you. But instead of being bothered by the fact that they were not following Jesus, John was bothered by the fact that uh, they were not following us, the exclusive tribe, the group that he was a part of. In the book of Numbers, you remember Moses, probably the first prophet-like character who was a spokesperson for God. At, in Numbers 11, there are two people, um, Eldad and Medad, who was, who, whom the Spirit fell on, and they were also prophesying. And this report came to Joshua and Moses, and Joshua, the protege of Moses, got so upset he said to Moses, my Lord Moses, stop them. They're not in our clique. Stop them. Moses is described as the most humble or meek person in, on earth. In Numbers 12, 3, this humble, meek prophet of God replies to Joshua, would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Is it important, Joshua, whether we get credit or they get credit? 
whether they were on our team as long as they are on Jesus' team. You know, um, sometimes we get confused. We get confused as to whether someone is a follower of Jesus and simply not on our tribe, or are they false followers of Jesus? And I think a lot of times, a lot of times we are more bothered by the fact that they're not a part of our tribe than they are a follower of Jesus or not. The second thing that kind of is interesting about this point is says John says, and the irony, if you remember last week's sermon, that the disciples try to heal, cast out the demons of the epileptic boy. Do you remember for some of you? And they could not do it. So they could not cast out the demons, but on this time, in this particular story, there was a group of people or a person casting out demons, and John says, stop them from doing that. Is John actually implying that he would rather that person be tormented by demons than them getting credit? It is a heartless, a cruel thought. You know, we need to become a follower of Jesus and not our brand. If we become loyal to our brand, whether it be our church, a denomination, or a theological um, uh, following, what happens is that we become, uh, we, we, we spend a lot of time in being loyal to the brand instead of Jesus. We sometimes then uh, don't rejoice in the work that others do. And sometimes we even hinder their work because they're not of our brand. Jesus answers and says, no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able to afterward to speak evil of me. And 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes Christians and churches are far too busy trying to figure out what's wrong with other churches and Christians, but not in our brand. Sometimes we just need to leave it up to the Lord at the end. And as long as they're preaching Jesus, we need to rejoice in it. You know, one of the things that I so appreciate about it, and I talk about this periodically, are the churches and pastors in Brea. Some eight years ago when we were moving to the city of Brea, I met with a few of the pastors here. One particular pastor, he, he sat me down, prayed for me, um, invited me to a, a gathering of other pastors called the Brea Ministerial Association. They welcomed me before I even, we even got here. And when the city was having the uh, conditional use permit hearing, and this is a big deal for churches because this was originally an industrial space, and it, it, we needed to get special permission from the city to use it as a church, this particular pastor, another pastor came, and this particular pastor, he knew all the planning commissioner. And, and um, he, he spoke on behalf of our church and, our, and, and us. The other pastor did. And, I, and we are forever grateful for them. Instead of seeing us as competition, 
they said, well, we're in the same work. We have the same mission. You know, the kingdom of God is much bigger than our own. I I know we don't like to use this word, but listen carefully, because we we scold our kids for doing this. We, We look at teenagers and say, I can't believe they're like this. But listen carefully, the kingdom of God is bigger than our cliques. Adult Christians have cliques. Churches have cliques. They're tribes, and we think that our clique is better than other people's cliques. We support our cliques. We, we protect it, but we are extremely critical of others. We don't want to participate, give them praise and such. And, and I want to make this clear that we do things like Feed Brea. We do things like a virtual choir. And I uh, so appreciate the churches and pastors in, in the city. But I also recognize that we have theological differences or, or, uh, or policy differences with a lot of the churches here. I will work alongside of them, but some of them, we, okay, if you're listening, pastors, just, you know, okay, just, I might not hire some of them, and they might not hire me for their church, because we're, we're slightly different in some of these things, but that's okay. Sometimes we need to be able uh, to say that it's not about me, I can stay anonymous. Our church can be anonymous. Our tribe can be anonymous if we want to be significant for God's kingdom. The third third, um, paradox is found in verses 42 through 50. It's eternal through sacrifice or eternal through eternity through a temporary sacrifice. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and we were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Jesus talks about what is better. What is better? And he does not give literal statements, but these are hyperboles, figures, in order to illustrate a point. Is it better to have a a, a large stone tied around your neck and be thrown into the deep water, which sounds awful, or to cause someone to sin, cause eternal damage? Is it better to amputate hands and feet, tear out your eye, become crippled for life, than to have a whole body but enter into eternal hell? What he's saying is that what is more important, what happens to you in eternity or what happens to you in this earth? The things that he points out are not things that are dispensable luxury items, life, hand, feet, eye. 
I think all of us would consider those not uh, discretionary things that we have, but they are the things that we hold in our life as important, valuable, necessary, non-negotiable, and indispensable. They are the base treasures that we hold. And he says, all of those things, any of those things, the most invaluable thing that you hold on to in this lifetime, is it worth holding on to that to sacrifice eternal destiny? You know, I used to think about this more when I was in college, but not as much anymore, I don't know why, but let me ask you a question. Do a mental inventory of your credit card bill, your Venmo bill. I don't know how else young people spend money nowadays. Right? Checking account. Are there other forms of money now? I don't know. And then ask yourself the question, are you spending vast amount of your resources accumulating, maintaining, paying for, striving after, hoarding things that will not last beyond this lifetime? I mean, what of those things that you spend so much energy on will last in eternity? But we are so obsessed with gathering treasures on earth. Jim Elliott, the missionary, uh, with a few friends, went to an island in Ecuador to minister to the indigenous people, and they sent gifts, and they thought they had made contact when they landed on that island, uh, they were massacred. A lot of people thought that was a waste of life, waste of education, waste of resource. Why would he throw all of those things away? For what? And these are the words that Jim Elliot penned in one of his diaries that we know so well now. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. My education, my assets, my life even. All of those things I can give away, but that which I gain in eternity, I cannot lose the paradox of the Christian life. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time, the paradox of the Christian life. You know why we strive for significance? Do you know why we strive for greatness? Do you know why we strive to hold on to earthly treasure so much? Listen carefully. Even as Christians, the reason why we strive for all of those things so much is because that's all we believe we have. If this is all there is, of course, we ought to strive for greatness in this lifetime. We ought to hoard as much as we can in this lifetime. We ought to try to be as famous, significant, so that people remember us in this lifetime because that's all there is. And we try and try and try, hoping, praying, thinking that it may make a difference. But listen, if there was no Jesus who took his disciples to the cross, climbed upon that cross, and not because of, of your striving, but because of what I've done for you. You are great, you are significant, 
and you have eternal life because of what I've done. We don't have to try because Christ did it for us and we rest in that. Would you rise with me? And Lord Jesus, we give praise to you for what you have done for us, not what we've done for ourselves. And we sing glory to your name.